Hi, I'm Shalushi Baxi Ritchie. And I'm Kosha Baxi Karstens. We are sisters and best friends who grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were really loved. We had a lot of friends, but we never felt like we fully fit in. We started to realize that there's probably a lot of other people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was a seed for this podcast. Then, during the 2020 election, we watched now Vice President Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence, and we got inspired. We want to hear, share, and amplify the voices of all Americans who have felt othered. We want to give everyone a platform to reclaim their power and their place by standing up and saying, I am speaking. So today we got to talk with a good friend of mine and uh, someone who used to come to my spin class when I taught Kristen Salvador. I have, this doesn't happen to me, I have very few words. I was blown away by Kristen. Yeah. Blown away. She, first of all, how much she's gone through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how willing she was to talk about it and be vulnerable. How did you become friends? Um, well, a couple of ways. Uh, Kristen came to my spin class. She was a regular participant when I used to teach at the park district here in Oak Park. Um, but our kids are also um, the same age and uh, went to the same school. So they're in the same class in fourth and fifth grade. Uh, so we sort of, you know, we're in this circling around each other in the same um, you know, in the same circles and then just kind of became friends. And she also helped me um, professionalize my PowerPoint presentation when I did my TED talk in 2019. Yeah. And we actually, I posted the TED talk and I will do it again because I think it's vital because uh, she's TED talk was about finding your own inner superhero. Mm -hmm. And um, I think giving those powers to um, othered individuals yeah. is, is power that the hegemony often doesn't want us to have. Yeah. But um, so if you want to check out her work, the TED Talk is actually on our social media and our website. But one I also want to say as a, as a shout out, Kristen's now become sort of my go-to person when I think about doing any graphic design work. We need a new logo. We need um, some images. Uh, my husband runs a site, you know, sort of like the unofficial, you know, manager of a cycle club here in town. And Kristen did the logo for the cycle club and did our podcast. Yeah. Our logo and our cover art for our podcast is by the amazingly talented Kristen Salvador. And I think, you know, her story about even what what was crazy to me was even in the very beginning, you'll hear her say, you know, that she is culturally Filipino, mm -hmm. but there's uh, Chinese ancestry there. And her parents even refused to acknowledge that. Yeah. No, 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 we're not Chinese, we're Filipino. So, you know, what she has gone through and what she's now going through mm -hmm. is, I mean, I, I literally, I have, I was blown away. That's, that's yeah. the words that I have. I think the thing that most impressed me is Kristen's insight um, and an ability to really vocalize the underlying challenges to what's resulting in anti-immigrant violence, particularly anti-Asian violence right now, and all the factors that might have contributed to where, where we are. Um, and, you know, you'll hear her say, I saw this coming a year ago. Um, and incidents, harassment happened to me even before 
COVID and it's only gotten worse. Um, so we're, we were really um, thankful that she was able to share that with us um, and are also very, very thankful that she has shared some resources that we can, that we are now going to share with you all about if you want to get involved and we strongly encourage you to find a way to get involved that feels comfortable for you. Check out the, the notes at the end um, about resources for anti, anti-Asian violence. Absolutely. Um, do us a favor, do yourself a favor and listen to this podcast with Kristen Salvador. Enjoy. Kristen Salvador, she is speaking. My name is Kristen, and I am speaking. Hi, Kristen. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm so, so excited to be talking to you. And for those of you who may know both of us, I imagine that some percent, maybe small percent, I hope it's small percent of our listening population knows that uh, Kristen and I both have kids in the same school. And when I was teaching spinning classes through the park district here, um, Kristen was one of my most consistent participants in class. And it was awesome to have her in class. So I took one class. I know. But I did not again. Every little bit counts. <laughs> yeah. Well, my sister, Kosh is a runner. And so I was trying to encourage her at the time to get into more cross training and think um, that time on a Sunday morning was more the challenge than anything else. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. I'm still impressed that I got to that class. I'm still impressed that I, as as I'm still impressed that I got to that class. Oh yeah. I I forgot what time was it at 9 a.m. or eight or something like that. It was 845 in the morning, 845 to 930. I distinctly remember it was four o'clock in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) For you. Yeah. All right. Enough chit chat. Let's get into the real like meat of the things or tofu of the things since you're vegan. Oh. <laughs> so, um, I sway towards a, a plant-based. All right. Wow. The beyond burger of the thing. There we go. There we go. So Kristen, I understand that you're, you're first generation American. Talk a little bit about both your family's background and Particularly, one of the things we're really interested in is what is the story that gets passed down to you from your parents and your parents' generation about what it was like for them to come to the States? So my parents are both from the Philippines. They are culturally Filipino, but my mom, I I think my dad too, they're part Chinese, but they never really, didn't really talk about that. We're Filipino and that's what we are, you know, but from the looks of me, you could, you can probably tell I'm like 30% Chinese. So my parents come from the Philippines and they came here in 1971 and they came separately and unmarried, but they were from the same town and they both ended up in San Francisco. Well, I know that they're both in California. My dad specifically was in San Francisco and they came here um, because I think there was that influx of immigrants coming over. If you had the right profession, you could come here and use that profession. So my dad was a mechanical engineer. My mom was a pharmacist. So they ended up in San Francisco and um, their first jobs here, my dad worked at a hotel, which I believe was the San Franciscan hotel. And he was like their maintenance guy. And my mom packed fish. So they did that for a couple of years. And I'm, I'm a little foggy on like, if they were both there, like they won't talk about like, I don't think they were living together, but they were both in California. I don't know if there was like mm. a plan to meet up. 
they never got into specifics about that. And then they just, they, they worked and they couldn't find jobs in their profession. So then they moved to Chicago. So they were both the first out of both sides of their families, the first in their families. They were both number four of six kids. And then I am the first one born in the U.S. out of both sides of the family. Wow. Wow. So you're the, you're the first, first generation American in your extended family. You are like that. Yeah. Me too. You're the first first. Yeah. Yeah. Did your parents then actively seek to bring their siblings over? They did. Uh, they brought their siblings and I, you know, I know cousins of theirs came, but I don't know how they related to that. I think maybe, you know, they just wanted everyone to come over if they could. Their parents mm-hmm. came for a visit. And- wow. Was the plan to sponsor everybody and to have them immigrate or just to come like to always have an open door for them to visit i think it was to sponsor them and because a lot i would say at least half of the families now on both sides they're half of them are here Hmm. i i think some of them came here uh you know undocumented and just stayed and um and some of them came through my parents that's interesting because you hear a lot of people undocumented from like land-based, mm-hmm. right? Like coming up from Mexico or, you know, Central America, but you don't hear a lot about the stories of undocumented immigrants from Asia or India. Or, yeah, anywhere. Or I anywhere mean, else where you get to fly or boat in. Well, but that's, you bring that up. That's actually one of the myths that we can dispel via this podcast, which is there's been a narrative about, you know, people coming across the Mexican border that's been the focus for so long. But when we were talking about immigration and, you know, addressing people who were here without visas, the vast majority of people who are, you know, here without papers, undocumented in some way, extend, they overextend their stay on visitors visas. It's not most people are not coming across the Rio Grande. Most people mm-hmm. come here to visit family and then they just don't go back. And there exactly. are so many international travelers that it's hard to enforce all of that. Is that considered like defection? No. Oh, no. Defection is when you're like, I'm leaving this state. I'm not a citizen anymore. It's just overstaying oh, your I visa. See. Okay. And then you just sort of like blend into the background. Exactly. That's exactly. Out of the stories I've heard, that's exactly what the family members did is they just came here and stayed and worked jobs and stock rooms and hid and and the yeah, story I was say, I, and then just hope that you don't need severe you know like health care or yeah. that you don't get stopped at a stoplight or something like that i mean there's a there's a there's a fair i think another myth is that people come here undocumented and then they're just living free yeah but there's a fair amount of fear that goes along with being undocumented, correct? Yeah. I would imagine. Well, I'll, they, I know for a fact that part of my family, and this is a story I've heard from several family members, extended family is like, they all worked in a bookstore, which I know is kind of funny now, but like they worked in the back room of a bookshop and they would stock things and like, um, you know, immigration would raid the place and they'd run out the back door. They, that's what, mm-hmm. that's what I heard happened is they would just be stocking things and, you know, there'd be a raid. Yeah, Someone sure. would call a an audible and then suddenly yeah. you knew to drop things yeah. and run. It's, that's, yeah. a, that's a 
different experience, a different immigrant experience from a family level than, you know, our parents, our parents also came over. They were not unmarried. My mom was married to my dad. And that was part of the condition of my mom being allowed to immigrate to the States was you have to be married. Um, So they were married, which is one different thing, but that they came over for the same reasons. You know, part of the Immigration Reform Act of the time was really focused on bringing over people from different countries or allowing people to come to the states who had, you know, specific skills, engineering, medicine, healthcare, things like that, which is why for our generation, there's the stereotype of like all Indians are doctors and lawyers and engineers. There Less is than- that stereotype for sure. <laughs> right. And that's because, you know, when we were 10 or 12 or 20, every Indian of the generation above us, those were the only people that they would allow to would come allow. to the country. You had to be a professional. Um, and it sounds like family, but it's, those were the only options I had. Like it was not acceptable to be something else when so, you were growing up. So talk a little bit about that because you're not a doctor, a lawyer or an engineer. Talk about sort of how all <laughs> she that engineers stuff played graphics. out. Well, she does, but, <laughs> but not in, I know what you mean. I'm and she's brilliant at it. Yeah, she is. My so my I posted on the on the I am speaking website by the way and the social media I posted your TED talk mm-hmm. so let's say um, people who have watched that have already seen your work yes Kristen absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome well yeah. I know PowerPoint gets a bad rep and uh, I love it I love it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so growing up I'm and I don't know my family's a little bit more unique even though. I don't know if you'll, if you'll have the same experience, but so when I was growing up, Asian families, and I knew very little, first of all, I grew up in the West suburbs. Did you grow, did you grow up in the suburbs? Uh, We did, well, kind of, sort of. We grew up in a little town in the middle of Illinois. It's called Streeter. It's a, if you've been to Starved Rock, you've been about 20 miles away from Streeter. So it's like way. Oh, that sounds like it would be a very interesting experience, even more so than mine, because I'm from the suburbs, and that is... Everyone has interesting experiences, but we actually, our first episode is just a conversation between me and Shayla Shea, and we talk about growing up in Streeter and how that felt being, you know, purposefully moved there. Our parents moved when, when I was two years old, and our first experience is feeling like, oh, this is, we're different. We're different. Yeah. And not that we don't fit in, but that we didn't blend. Yeah. And that was definitely an experience. But both but this of is us, about you. I am very interested um, in some of these topics. And I I will probably ask you some questions later too about your experiences. Yeah. Oh, please. Yeah. It's harder. It's hard for me to find people that relate, that quite relate to what's going on right now. So I, I grew up in the West Suburbs. My parents moved us there because it was close to the city. And my mom worked at Cook County Hospital at the time. And she worked there forever for 40 years. My dad, my dad worked at Cook County. Oh, he was really? a resident at Cook County. Yeah. Oh. He was when he when um, he came back or before yeah, he no, went? when he came back, when he came back, he was a resident. He was a urology resident at Cook County back wow. in 1977. Seven. Yeah. yeah. So she after she, she was born before us. Huh? She was there? What did she do? She was a pharmacist, probably. She was a pharmacist, but you know, it's funny because she told me she was a pharmacist for a really long time. And she was a pharmacist in the Philippines, but then she came here. 
and she didn't take the test. So she was a farm tech, but she never told me that. Whoa. So I was... Do you like how yeah. all of us were like, whoa? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> because, you know, and there's a there's an identity and a pride thing, is what I'm hearing from you. Right. Because our mom also uh went, she's a dentist in India. And it has been, she came here after she got married and she didn't retake. She had to go through, you know, the part of dental school and then she didn't retake her exams and do her residency. But still to this day. And she knows everything about, you know, teeth and like, she's really good about that stuff, but she hasn't practiced dentistry in over 45 years and she still will, wants to identify with that. Right. So your mom was a, was a farm tech. She farm knew. tech, but from what I knew, she was a pharmacist. She would always just tell me she was a pharmacist. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't realize till like I was an adult that she was a farm tech because somebody I knew had a relative that worked with her and they're like, Kristen, you said your mom was a pharmacist, but she's just a farm tech. I'm like, Ooh, and it was another Filipino. And, and I'm like, that's a very, very Asian thing of you to say, you know what I mean? Like, I'm like yeah. My person is going to say that. To me. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. So I grew up in the West suburbs and um, it wasn't, it wasn't street or Illinois, but I feel like it may as well have been. Because it was very, uh, it was made very clear that I was not the same as everybody. I didn't realize that I wasn't the same until I was like six or seven. And then somebody told me that I wasn't like them. They said, I, they're like, well, you're, you're Chinese, Kristen. And I believe it was someone Caucasian who said, you are Chinese. And I'm like, so I went home and told my parents, they're like, you're Chinese. And, and then that's when I started um, learning about white and black Americans often think that Asian people in this country, uh, East Asian looking people are Chinese or just, you know, mm-hmm. if you're not South Asian and you're just Asian, you're Chinese. Mm-hmm. So, and that was the era that was the eighties. That was like long up dong. Right. That was all that garbage. And it was just like, okay. To make fun of people. It was just okay. Like, I believe my teachers even said things. Like, I had a shop teacher who once told me, he said, your people are supposed to be good at this. <laughs> okay. I, first of all, I don't even know what that means. I was, I was like, is that a stereotype that exists? Yeah, like, I know. <laughs> Chinese people are really good woodworkers. Like, I don't... Also... China is more than 1 billion people alone. Just China. Like, what do you mean all Chinese people are good woodworkers? That doesn't, I mean, I know it wasn't a billion people back in the eighties, but it was a lot of people way more than the United States. And how do you even say something like that? Yeah. But it's, it's the same idea as, you know, people saying all of our people own a Seven Eleven, or, yeah. you know, all Indian people. I mean, that it's, it's these just big blankets statements, but the fact that, I mean, I, what's really astounding is that a teacher was allowed mm. to say that to you. Yeah. Yeah. Teachers would make comments here and there, and it was just accepted. Like in the eighties, I feel like I look back on those. I'm like, I can't believe they were allowed to say that. Like mm-hmm. nobody cared. Right. It's a bit of like, so what are you going to do? Like complain about it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like my parents are like, just shut up and work hard. <laughs> right. Shut up. You'll, you'll be fine. Yeah. That's one of the things we're definitely hearing that common thread amongst first generation kids is, you know, even in, even in sort of more Western 
you know, we uh, someone on our podcast is has parents from Poland, but the messaging is still the same. Head down, work hard. We didn't give up our whole lives somewhere else that you could complain about something that's not actively hurting you, like physically, right? Like that's, if someone was beating you, there might be a reason to complain, but like these microaggressions as we, you know, now know them, the small slights about how you're different and like being stereotyped, that's absolutely irrelevant to why we are here, why, what you're supposed to be doing, right? Exactly. Yeah. At the beginning of the pandemic, my dad would say things like, because I was talking to him about all the hate crimes that were happening. And I, I, I remember a year ago, I was telling people this was happening. It was kind of like, man, okay, Chris. Oh, okay. But my dad was just like, just don't, just don't, uh, I don't know about that. Just don't, don't notice it. You know, mm-hmm. that was like his attitude about all that kind of stuff is like, just ignore it. Yeah. It's a, um, I feel like, yeah, our parents too definitely had, and you know, our aunts and uncles had a very like good vibes only mentality. Good vibes only. We're only going to fo- focus on the positive. Focus on what you can do. Don't worry about the haters without recognizing that, you know, and this is where I think things get lost is that when you're born in this country, you're raised as an American, you know, you feel like you have as 100% right to be where you are as everyone else mm-hmm. who is white, whose families came over on the Mayflower which is a whole nother thing, right? But let's say that's that's the mindset. Well, I deserve to be here because my family came over on the Mayflower and your family just came over. Um, so you don't have a right to be here. But those us first generation kids, like, no, this is my home too. You know, and I remember thinking when I was thinking about this, like our parents never expected to, they, that's not what they're looking for, acceptance, you know, integration. They didn't want that. They're like, we're just here to get the opportunity. And if people want to slag on me a little bit, I'm just not paying attention to that. For us, though, it's very different, right? It's like, this is my home. I don't want to be slagged on. I deserve to be here just as much as anyone else. I'm not a foreigner here. I'm here. I live here. This is my home. Like, people say, go back to where you came from. I was like, Chicago, literally Chicago. Like, I was born in Chicago. Illinois. (laughs) Yeah. And what we're seeing now with Asian Americans, you know, and the hate crimes is really similar to some of the microaggressions or the actual aggressions that you know, brown people went through like Asian American, uh, South Asian, sorry, Indian Americans and other, you know, South Asian Americans who went through after 9-11, you know, getting told like our cousin was called a raghead and we were told to go back to where we came from. Um, so I think, you know, our heart, my heart like breaks when I see this stuff. Cause I was like, I remember so vividly that, that pain of that, like, you know, racial violence. Yeah. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking. And a lot of people, I think, don't take it seriously when it comes to Asian Americans because of the model minority uh, myth. You know, it's just kind of like, well, how can you complain? You're living a decent life. You know, you have a, you have a decent income and you live in a good neighborhood. And so why would you complain? Mm -hmm. And that just really makes my blood boil. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go a little bit deeper into this area of sort of anti-Asian violence as as it's connected to, you know, the current COVID pandemic. Um, And I know you have a very personal experience with that. So I want to invite you to talk about that if you'd like to. Sure. Yes. I have not left my house by myself in over a year. 
by myself. I have not left. And I have tried to explain this to my husband's side of the family. I don't feel safe. And we didn't, we didn't let our kids go back to school. And I honestly feel like this is the best neighborhood that you could live in for what's happening right now. Like, it's okay. Like, if something happens here, it's still worse in other towns, honestly. And I know that my kind of, but this is the area to live in, but I still don't feel safe. I've been ching-chonged on the street right here in Oak Park. Um, and I, for okay. our, for our uh, listeners, can you explain what that is? It's just when someone says, ching ching And it's supposed to be making fun of you. Now, that's something I would have expected when I was younger, because mm-hmm. it happened when I was younger a lot. But this, I was just like, it was a middle, it was two middle school girls, one white, one black. And I Mm. thought, who is teaching you these things? Who would ever say this in front of you that you would do this? And so we are even, even though we're such a great town and such a great area, it's, you know, nobody is excluded from what's happening. Um, And then I do know that an East Asian runner woman was um, harassed early on in the pandemic, um, just right here in our area, like within a few blocks. And it's just very disturbing. And I I have told people about it, people who are not Asian. I've told neighbors about it. I've talked about how stressful that is. And then I've also talked to, you know, my husband's family about it. And I've I'm really just exhausted from all the um, white, the white silence, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like, I've literally gotten a blank stare and nothing. Crickets. Okay. Right. That is- so either our ours, you know, our, our, our husband's sides are not. Indian. So I just wanted to clarify that we're speaking from the same place there. And also I want to just reiterate that you're not leaving your house alone during a pandemic, not because you don't feel safe about the virus, but you don't feel safe because of the violence. I think that's a very important point to make here. I, you know what? It's both. We, because my husband's immunocompromised, but it's both, but mainly it's because I just, I don't want to get attacked or harassed. And I've been harassed before the pandemic and I'm like, it's not going to be any better now. So, and my husband's family, they are straight Midwestern white bread. No, Kosha, you have to understand this is really different for us. (laughs) And I'm like, but it's not different for us. And also this is still a wedding where two families, I mean, I was so. Right, right. Well, like when we were, because we were having an Indian ceremony or a, a Hindu ceremony. And also we had a, a Christian ceremony, but, you know, it, it was like, it became so, it became just the phrase that it was. And, you know, even Brian and Brian, I, I count him as a white ally. I really, really do. Um, he's vocal about it. We have a daughter who you know, he wants to not have this stuff happen and he'll, he'll, he'll stop something if he sees it. But recently we were in, we were in Tennessee and we were driving, I see Confederate flag. Like we had turned down a small, I I saw Confederate flags. I saw guys in like fatigues and I saw Trump 2020 signs. And I was like, we need to go. 
And what I realized, and Brian and I had an awesome conversation. What I realized was he goes, no one's going to bother you when we're just driving in the car. He was trying to get me to calm down as he was leaving. But for me, I was like, that's when people bother me. I said, no, babe, no one's going to bother you when you're driving in this car. And I realized at that moment, like just the fact that as much as he wants to understand, he doesn't understand. And that, you know, going to my in-laws, it's like one more step like of that conceal don't feel. Everything's fine. You're part of our family. Everything's fine. But I'm part of their family as a Karstens. I'm not part of their family as, you know, Kosha, who has this whole other Indian backstory. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you have a similar, you know. I think every person of color who's married to a white, you know, person who's has family here for generations kind of has that experience of being like, no, we accept and appreciate you, but don't make us think about what's happening on a, like what, who you are beyond who you are. Like, don't make us think about what you represent out in the world. And if you weren't one of us, how we might treat you, you know, if you weren't related to us, what would your experience be like here? So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of appalled by that. I'm Asian and my family is so Catholic (laughs) or my immediate family is so Catholic. So and that's that's a lot of it too. Yeah. That's a lot of the root of it. I think we're the only Asian country that's super Catholic. Is the Philippines? If I under if I have my history correct, the Philippines were colonized by Spain, correct? Mm-hmm. So that's I'm imagining that's where the Catholicism came from, which is the Spaniards brought over Catholicism, and then and the last sort of- names. So my last name is Spanish. Yeah. 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 So the Spaniards came over and they said, now you're doing what we do. Right. Would you like, would you like to become Catholic or would you like us to kill you? Right. Exactly. Like, everyone's like, no, 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 I'm, I'll become Catholic. That's cool. Catholic is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> right. Compared to death. Yeah. No, that's great. So we can go in a number of different directions here because we have started a bunch of little threads. I know there's so much, there's so much. I know it's, that's one of the hardest things about having these conversations is that like, every conversation can literally be like 10 hours and we having to choose. So I'm going to, I'm going to put it back on you. What would you, which little thread would you like to follow? Obviously we've got this one about religion, you know, that just came up. We started talking about that fact that you did not choose to go into engineering or medicine or law. And then we've got this thread around COVID and anti-Asian violence. So, you know, whatever's really resonating for you, that's, that's a path we're going to follow. I, uh, let's go with, uh, the, uh, career paths. Yeah. I think it's going to be very interesting. So my parents are obviously math and science people. They're, uh, a pharmacist and a mechanical engineer. And my sister is an illustrator and I'm a graphic designer. Wow. Yeah. And you're the, but you're the older one. So Mm -hmm. you had to break, you had to be the person that was like breaking the news. Like, no, I'm not going into math and science. So how did that play out for you? Um, you know, it was hard. So in high school, I, I knew that I was going to go to UIC. I wasn't allowed to apply anywhere else. And I was going to go there because it was close and I was going to live at home, which also was not great because I wanted 
to have everybody else's experience too. And they're like, well, I just live at home. Why would you, why would you want to go to else? And so I went to UIC and they, they had me apply for the pre-pharmacy school, which I did and it was fine. And I was like, you know, during the process, I was like, I just don't think I can go into college and do this. I just can't do it. So I had, I talked to my guidance counselor in high school and she actually either, I don't remember if she brought my parents in or called them on the phone and she said, you should really think about making her do this. This is not something she wants to do. And if she does do it, she might hate it so much that she'll either fail out or quit. Hmm. And that really helped me a lot because I thought, this is somebody who's advocating for me. Like she hurt me. And my parents like, you're never going to get a job. You're never going to be able to support yourself. And really, it wasn't that they knew that stuff. It's that they just didn't know anything about it. Where they're from, people are poor and dying on the streets. And um, if you didn't have one of these five jobs, you were doomed. Okay. And there wasn't welfare and people are just going to let you die like on the street and starve. So I understand where they're coming from with that. But in the U.S., it's like American parents are like, well, what are you interested in? What are you good at? Oh, let's let's nurture that and really find out where that will take you. Mm-hmm. Filipino culture or Asian culture in general is like, here's what we envision you to do. And we're going to try and mold you into this. And if you're not fitting into that mold, it's a little upsetting because there might be something wrong with you. <laughs> Um, And so that was, that was what I got. But my sister and I had always been interested in drawing and being creative. And I went to school for graphic design, which was, um, it was hard for them to accept, but I did it. And, um, and I was able to find a job and work and be who I was. And they always told me, even extended family members are like, well, why don't you just be an architect? That's probably and I'm like, well, no, it's not the same thing. This is what I want to do. And it was fine. And my sister went to school for art education because they thought, well, at least a teacher is better than an artist. Well, she she ended up teaching for a couple of years and she now she illustrate like she illustrates. So it, we just ended up where we wanted to be anyway. And they just they didn't find it acceptable and um it just wasn't within what they were used to. They're very uncomfortable with it. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't, you know, brag to their friends, which is also, I, th- I think, a first-generation thing of, like, these things are acceptable. So, um, you know, if you do this, I'm going to look really good to these people I want to impress. Yeah. How much of that is both... Um, how It's this really toxic mix of this is what we expect of you and not actually seeing who you are, but only seeing what, how much you're capable of filling in the box that they've already set up for you. Um, Exactly. That plus taking whatever your kid is doing on as some kind of reflection of who you are or how valuable you are in your community. You know, did you, are you doing the right things? You have the right career. Did you get married at the right time? Did you have the requisite amount of children? Do you look the right way? Do you wear the right clothes? I mean, for both of us, we were never allowed to cut our hair as children. We had hair down past, you know, past our butt basically. 
because that was considered a sign of beauty in India. And my parents would routinely talk and talk up and brag Brad. about how beautiful their daughter's hair was. It was so long and so thick and so beautiful. Dad cried when you got your haircut. I, I hated my hair. I hated oh, it. Gosh. I was a swimmer and I played soccer and my hair was, it was a detriment to me in all cases. It's like five pounds, right? Like I feel like it's like so much weight. Yeah. Literally and figuratively. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. It is both the actual weight of having that much hair on your head and the literal weight of your parents' expectations right there. This is, you know, this is part of how you're expected to look. This girls in India don't cut their hair. So it's why would you do that? It means something about us as parents if you cut your hair. So that's it was um I totally, I totally get that, like both as a career thing, but also just the big picture of like, you didn't do a certain thing. You didn't look a certain way. You didn't act a certain way of somehow some big reflection on who they were. Um, uh, where's it going to go? I had a question. So how much of, so, um, you know, you did talk about like how much of that was expectations or how it looks to other people, but how did did any of that judgment or oh man just go do something else or you know when you were able to get a job make money you know live in that universe that you created for yourself in graphic design did they ease up a little bit on the um the career judgment well they always said and they said this to both my sister and I they just they'll never understand what we do which is fine and they never by any means seemed impressed by anything we were doing. God, don't ever look impressed or satisfied with, you know, something that you've chosen. So we just, we honestly just didn't talk about it. The only time they seemed somewhat proud, and I know that, that it was because of my title, like I was an art director somewhere or a creative director somewhere. The word director is the only thing they heard. Mm-hmm. They didn't hear creative or art before. They just heard director. So then they would tell people like she's a director at this agency. And I thought, wow, that's, that's, I mean, that's not really me. It's I authentically, I'm not like a director person. I'm a creative person, but that's what they chose to hear out of it. So I feel like they didn't really address it after that. You know, both my sister and I got this like art scholarship and they were just so like unimpressed. Oh, you know, they were just like, mm-hmm. you know, if one of my kids did that, I would just, it would be like, that's amazing. I'm so proud of you. They're like, Meh. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, you tell me that now and I'm like, I'm super impressed I know. about getting an art scholarship. Cause I don't know how many, if you've ever seen my art, I know Kosha has my art levels are at like a four-year-old level. Would I'm we call sure. what you do art? No. Okay. No, it's like <laughs> kindergarten scrawling. Like it's so, I'm so bad at like any sort of like drawing or sculpting or anything like that. Like it just not, that's I'm not able to do that. So the fact that you got a scholarship, I'm like, cause I mean, it was a very small scholarship. It was, no, don't, don't, yeah. You know, don't qualify it. It, it was like a full ride. Or anything like that. Matter. Someone saw what you were able to do and said, "Woo, that's talent. This we is worth something." That. Yeah. So that's that's super amazing, and it is. You know, it's sad that your parents were like, eh. "Maybe if you yeah. had gone to medical school and racked up, you know, twenty billion dollars in debt, that would be far more impressive." Right. If you were miserable but you had a better title, that would be okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> 
And Kristen, I, I relate to that a hundred percent because I'm in sales, I'm in pharmaceutical sales and, you know, my dad's a physician. So I think he also saw, you know, salespeople come into his office. But when I got my first sales job, um, there was an element of like, are you sure to be in sales? You're going to be a salesperson. And so I definitely relate to this idea of like, no matter how far I get in this trajectory of being in sales, you know, my parents don't get it. They don't get it. They, they, and they never will, I don't think. I mean, they try, I think now, but it's well, not something the that. Yeah. Right. Right. They try. And I just, but I think there is a lot of similarity there that just like in the Philippines and India, it's like there, there are X number of careers that are acceptable that are going to, you know, help you be su- successful, financially successful in life. And then everything else is kind of scrapping. And if you're lucky, you can scrap your way to a good place. If not, you know what? You know, welcome to the gutter, basically. Like, there's nowhere for you to go except for down, unless you're actively engaged in a career where there's some financial security. I also joke that that's the reason that, and I think a lot of, it's true for a lot of, like, Asians generally, South Asians, East Asians, we don't camp. Camping is what poor people do because that's where people sleep on the ground. Why would you voluntarily sleep on the ground? My parents are like, that was our life. What are you talking about? Yeah, right. I mean, why would you voluntarily go and sleep on the ground when you have a bed? We came here so you didn't have to sleep on the ground. Right. So, yeah, I just, and so much of that mindset comes over with people, even if you're living in a place where that's clearly not the case, that uh, there's only five acceptable careers and everyone else is just sort of like scrapping for the leftovers. Right. Yeah. I have never been camping in my life, by the way. And, and I see people, you know, like I see people camping all the time. Everybody's mm-hmm. camping. I'm like, I have never done that. And my parents are like, also, I don't, you don't have to, you don't have to, I don't like it. So yeah, I, I don't know if I would like it, but part of that is like, my parents are like, why would you do that? So moving along, that was, college and career. When did you meet your partner and how did that play out with your family? Was there an expectation that you would marry within your culture? Um, I never, I never got that sense that I would marry necessarily within my culture. I mean, it was preferred that I had married a Filipino doctor. I knew that, but specifically I don't think they were against Scott. So I met Scott in college at UIC and it was a, it, at UIC, it was extremely, it was like the opposite of my neighborhood. It was like mostly Asian. I mean, it felt mostly Asian, but I know it's like 30, 30, 30 or something there. I just felt like it was super diverse and, you know, it was in the city and very urban and that's where I met Scott. And I didn't think so we got married pretty much after I graduated. He's a couple years older, but we got married pretty much after I graduated. And my parents didn't have a problem with his ethnicity or cultural differences. It was more of our age. Like my parents wanted me to get married at 30 and, oh. you know, have a career really established before I did this. And that I, you know, I wasn't having, I wasn't having the experience. My cousins were like, you're not having the experience pretty much as like going out and being wild. And I told them, like, I just, I know 
he's it. And I, I just know he's the one. And so my family didn't quite understand that. They thought that it was just too young to be married at 22 or 23. And he was 24, 25, but they just thought I was too young. And also, you know, we didn't want to get married in the Catholic church. Like I just, yeah, I just couldn't do it. I just, you know, a lot of, a lot of kids will be okay with just kind of like going through the motions for their family. There was something like deep inside of me where I just like, couldn't, I just couldn't go through with it. So we didn't get, we just went on a vacation. We got married in the Bahamas. Who knows if we're really married. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you guys have been together. You two have been together long. 20 years. Oh yeah. Seven years. So you're now you're whatever it is. You're married. Yeah. 18. Yeah. We've been married 18 years. We've been together like 20 years and it's, you know, I, I don't regret ones not getting married in the church and I don't regret not having a wedding and any of that kind of stuff. So I, they were just that's what it's that. crazy to hear you say that they didn't want you to get married because you were too young. We had the opposite. So that's like my jaw hit the ground. Yeah. Um, yeah was in- so are you supposed to be married by 25 in your yeah. That's okay. 25 yeah. is pushing it. No, oh, well, wow. not now. Yeah. Not now. I mean, back my, in the day, my mom was 25 and they were despairing that she would ever get married. Oh um, my. Yeah. Yeah. You were an old maid. Shulshi. I was 28 when, eight when I got married and they were like, I mean, they, they gave up <laughs> kind of, I mean, they were like, just find someone, please. Like there was a whole <laughs> point at which they were trying to um, help me meet someone who was, you know, both not just, Gujarati, which is the state that we're from, so what you call that not ethnicity, but you know, whatever we, we're Gujarati. And then there's also yeah, and there's also caste issues that go into this. So right. um, you can't just be any Gujarati. You have to meet someone of the right caste from the right community, right? That culturally, marriages are seen as community building things. So it's not just you and your spouse. It's you and your spouse and their families and their extended families. Does everyone, you know, is this, it's like connecting villages together basically way back in the day. And so my parents tried really hard to help me meet someone that they thought I would make, you know, be a good match with. I had been sort of date kind of like loosely dating someone. It's hard to really date someone when you live on the West coast and that person lives in St. Louis. Um, but you know, we had sort of been, seeing each other when we could. And he told me that he was going back to India to see his parents, which absolutely. Yeah, I get it. And he said, and I'm supposed to meet some girls, but don't worry. I'm not going to get married. And I was like, look, we're from the same community. I get how this works, right? You're going to go back. Your parents, when you get married, you're going to tell me you're not interested in that because we're, we're, you know, we're, we're kind of dating. I believe you. He went back. My parents were actually in India. They were on their, going to be coming back to the States. Um, And a day after my parents flew back to the States, his wedding invitations were out. So, Oh my God. Yeah. After that pair, after that thing happened, my parents were like, just find someone like, just find whoever you find as long as they're a good person to find someone. And your, your husband is a wonderful person and he's, he's a good person. Oh, I was like, (laughs) I'm looking outside the doors to see if you're like trying to bother him up. Like, is he? No, 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 no. I don't have to say he's a wonderful. No, he's a great guy, and he makes you know he he's amazing at what he does, and he's a great dad. But 
none of that was really front and center for mom and dad when you got no, married. No, no, it was very much like just find someone. So you're like, well, don't also, you're, you're shaming us. <laughs> well, yeah, or and, and that it's weirdly enough. I mean, I in a way it's weird, but in a way it's not weird at all. Like um, that in India, there's definitely the expectation that you marry in order. So if the oldest child doesn't get married, there's something wrong with that person. And therefore other people might not be willing to consider younger children as potential partners because there's something wrong. So Kosha had already met and had been dating her now husband much, you know, significantly before I met my partner, my husband, but there was a lot of like, Shaylee, she has to meet someone and get married for everyone else to move forward. I couldn't hold up the line basically. Or you would hold up the line. Yeah. Or I would end up holding the line. So there's in addition to the um, anxiety about would I ever find someone, there's also the anxiety about how does this play out from the rest of the family? Because if I don't get married, then Kosha can't get married unless it's like so far that I'm like, that person's just a lost cause. Right. So if I right. was like, like giving up. Yeah. That. Yeah. Okay. We're, she, she's never going to get married. And if she does, Oh my God, that's amazing. But if I was like within a certain age, then everyone else has to wait for me, including my, my cousins. So it ends up being this very, like the pressure is not just about me personally, but it's about how it affects other people in the family. I mean, yeah. So by the time I met Justin, they were like, thank God, like he's a decent person. His family is, he has a good family and you guys get along and good on you go get married. I know mom and my parents were also concerned about whether someone would want to marry me because as Kosha has said, I'm just a lot. Um, I'm very opinionated. I'm outspoken. I've said that. That's why that's why not. I haven't just to be clear. Sorry. I I don't say that about you in general. No, I say that's why mom and dad were concerned (laughs) because I'm a lot (laughs) because they thought that you're a lot. Yeah. And that's somewhat like, cause traditionally in that like Indian man, you know, machismo kind of way, you were not supposed to be that loud or that vocal or that opinionated or that anything or that anything, yeah. right? You're not supposed to be an extreme anything. Right. So it sounds like your parents were not like they were accepting of Scott. Yes. Um, they just didn't like the timing. They didn't like the timing of it. Right. They didn't, they didn't like the fact that I had just graduated from college and even though I had my own job, my own thing happening, they were just not okay with it. They just thought I hadn't, you know, been out there enough or, you know. That's a stark contrast to the fact that they wanted you to live at home while you were at college. Right. Exactly. They want me to live at home. And then as soon as I get out there, I remain single until it's acceptable for me, you know, all within the, the context of being a, a good Catholic, <laughs> which it all just like conflicts. It doesn't, <laughs> none of it matches up. Yeah. Your life so, sounds like it was full of like paradoxes that yeah. you were just like, expected to accept. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Did you, I, I assume that your parents eventually found out that you had gotten married in the Bahamas. Yeah, I told them straight out, you know what? We're just going to go on a vacation and get married. And they're like, no, you're not. Yeah. Oh, oh, well, you told them. So. And I, and I was like, yeah, see ya. See ya when I get back. <laughs> How did that go? Like when they found out that you actually got married, were they like aghast? Were they angry? Did it cause any sort of 
you know, schism for a while? They were upset that they had lost control of the situation. And that was like really the point in my life where I started thinking, wow, this is my life and I get to do what I want. They can't tell me what to do necessarily. And yeah, a lot of people feel obligated to do what their parents want them to do. But I was just like, I don't have to do this. And that's when I said, you know what? I love you guys, but I have to do this and I want to do it. And I'm, I'm going to go and, you know, and I think what they thought is you can't get married unless we pay for a wedding. Oh yeah. That's kind of like the assumption that I wanted a wedding and that she can't get married anyway, because who's going to pay for the wedding. And, and I'm like, no, no wedding, just a marriage. And this is the way it's going to go. So they thought they had control over it. I think because they would pay for a wedding and that wasn't the case. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. How long did it take them to accept that that had happened? It took a while. It took probably a few years, four or five years. And then, you know, after telling me how I was so young to be getting married, they were like, well, how come you don't have a baby? And I make a decision on which direction. I've lost control over this situation. How do I gain control again? What else can I criticize in control now? Yeah, and right. so, and you know, it was six, six or seven years until I had my first, and and then because they were like, well, why, why don't you have a baby? And I was like, well, we're we're deciding, we're choosing not to have kids for a while, and that was it. And then, you know, they met her, and of course, they loved her and fell in love with her, and it was just like that became their new obsession. Right. 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 I, you, and you don't have to share this if you don't want to, because I'm realizing I'm asking a question that's not your story to tell. So if you're like, eh, that's really my sister's thing. How does your story with Scott compare with if your sister has a partner? How did that play out? Was it different? Were your, did your sister also, you know, give your parents a metaphorical middle finger and say, I'm going to do what I want. And they were more accepting because you had already sort of broke through that barrier or was her story different? And how did it compare to yours? So I will say that both my sister and I did the exact opposite of what my parents wanted. Both of us did. So she is not married, but she's been with a partner for 10 years or so. And um, he's also a white guy. He's like a quiet, very nice, soft-spoken guy, at, at least when I'm around. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know otherwise. But, um, you know, we both did not have they have this thing in filipino culture where you do like a debutante ball like a debut when you're 18 it's kind of like a quinceanera Mm -hmm. my sister and i are not those those debut kind of girls we didn't have weddings we didn't i did not have like a big baptism ceremony for my kids which is like big in filipino culture baptism it's everything we just didn't do any of that where my parents were like receiving all the attention and accolades about being parents to these awesome girls. And we just didn't do any of that. And I think that it was, that was a big disappointment. Her life, she lives in Brooklyn and her life is, um, it's not dissimilar to mine. I mean, she lives the New York life and, and she's a creative and um, she does not have children and she is not married. So I think that my parents are just kind of like, well, you know, that's, they were more accepting of that because 
she was the second kid. She got a lot. I, I, I did a lot of the buffering anyway. So at that point they were just like tired already. I mean, your parents have four kids. My parents were tired and she was only the second one. So well, my parents were tired with me too. I mean, we talk about more how, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, then it got, they got more, more, tired. more tired. Yes. But I, your story is really similar to ours. Shlushi did. Well, a, she's extroverted and she's more, um, assertive and she's more out there but also she was the oldest so she broke a lot of the barriers before i came along yeah yeah one of the biggest fights i had with my parents when i was a teen was whether i could date someone or not and that would have continued to be a huge issue except for that i had gone to boarding school and so a lot of what i did when i wasn't at home it was you know just i was off in my own world and that in some ways, going to boarding school really saved my relationship with my parents because it would have wow. been all the fights about control. Where yeah. did you go to boarding school? I went to IMSA. Cool. Yeah, not like military yeah. school because she was a bad kid. <laughs> no, no my, uh, Justin calls it the nerd high school for nerds. It's not, it's not untrue. I, um, Christian, I were just talking about this. I uh, went to school with, not in my class, but a year ahead of me, uh, one of the co-founders of YouTube, Steve Chen, graduated okay. from my high school. Oh, so I went to high school with those people. Yeah. Sure. She went from being like the smartest kid in her freshman high school class to being like one of the dumb ones. Yeah. At MC. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I took AB Calc one, which is like remedial calc, the last possible semester in school. And only because you had to take a semester of calc to graduate. Otherwise, they wouldn't yeah. let you graduate. Cal- no calculus is remedial calculus. But at IMSA, AB calculus, your last possible semester yeah. was remedial. And I think I got like a B minus or something like that. It was just like, I just passed. That was it. Like, it just seemed to pass. <laughs> yeah. So can we, I just to pivot back, because I think you have such a unique perspective about mm-hmm. what is going on right now Yeah. Um, with COVID and the Asian hate crimes that it, that are going on. You have also a very personal situation that happened to you during this pandemic with your father. Um, would you like to share that, that story? Sure. Yeah. My uh, dad was a um, cancer survivor. He had, he had lung cancer and he was in remission and he lives, um, he lived with my mom in Las Vegas and they were living like a happy retired life. He was, wearing a mask and he was golfing and he didn't really go anywhere else. And he was, um, at least this time around, he was a Democrat and, you know, he, he had some same thinking. He, he thought very similarly to me and my sister. And, um, you know, he would tell us when this first started happening, he said, make sure you keep the kids home from school. Like you don't know. And I'm like, you're right. Totally. I get that. Like, I'm not going to, uh, we don't know what's happening with this virus. So we'll be safe. And especially with Scott. And then before you know it, it was just like my cousin or my sister called me and said, Hey, you know what? He he's positive for the virus. And I thought that's, that's so strange. You know, he's, he's been healthy recently and he's been in remission for quite a while and he's golfing and doing whatever. And I thought to myself, well, he's, he's probably, he's going to be fine. I mean, you know, it's like a 
0.1% chance. And so he, he got COVID and this is what we believe. Um, he got it. We think it, it was for my mother who was asymptomatic. So my mother didn't show any symptoms. And by the time she may have gotten a slight fever, I mean, he was already in the hospital. So, you know, and it, it's, of course, everyone's going to think this with every single person that has suffered from COVID or died of COVID is that it's highly, it's highly unfair that, you know, he did the right things. He stayed in, in my opinion, he uh, voted for the right person. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then everybody else is like anti-mask, pro, pro Republican sort of like, we believe in our freedoms and all that kind of stuff there. I don't feel like it was fair that he was one of the people that really had to suffer from this. It's like, he did all the right things. He believed in doing the right things and it just, it didn't work out for him. So he was, um, he was put into a coma after a couple weeks of being in the hospital. And then, you know, you can't have any guests. He can't even talk because everything's like all these tubes and he was in the coma for, I think, about seven or eight days. They brought him out of it. And then that was it. You know, um, I guess when they're weaning you from the ventilator, there's a big chance that things will just fail, but they have to take you off of it. And he was diabetic. And so, you know, his kidneys went first and mm. that was just it. And you know, he was 75 and I think he had at least a good 10 years in him. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't in a nursing home. He was physically able to do things. And um, to me, it was a life really cut short. And I know 75 doesn't sound young to people, but if you knew him and if you saw him and it just didn't seem, it just, it didn't seem a match. It wasn't like, you know, an old sickly person. Yeah. These are just like normal, average people going about their lives. Right. And so because of, because of the whole COVID situation, um, you know, there was no service, no funeral, no nothing. And I'm just assuming that there was a bit of a backup. He was cremated. And I know that it, it took almost like a month. Wow. Because I think they're, I'm assuming there was like a backup of mm-hmm. COVID cases. So, well, I'm saying I'm sorry feels like such a like, cop out. Yeah, just such a sub standard response to trauma and, yeah. and grief. Well, it's always appreciated. No, there's not much you can say. You know, it's like it's appreciated. He died on the day of the insurrection. Oh, my mother. Yeah. January 6th. Huh? No, we can swear on this podcast. Oh, Oh, yes, we can. Oh, we can? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, I'm not cutting that shit out. One of the... (laughs) Kristen's like, can we start over? (laughs) One of the hardest things I think about COVID is that... Well, two things. I would say start with one. There's actually two. One is that on an individual level, there's no way to actually calculate what meaningful risk is, right? Like, you can catch it and have zero symptoms. You can catch it and be kind of sick. You can catch it and be very, very sick and come out of the hospital and have a lot of problems. You can catch it, go into the hospital, never come out of the hospital, 
or you can catch it and live with symptoms for six, eight months a year. You know, serious, really tough symptoms that doctors don't even know how to deal with on some level. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's one thing where I'm just like, well, then you want your chances of of being exposed to it zero because it's not like getting a cold where you're like, look, you get a cold, you can be 99.999% sure that your symptoms will look like this. And then after five days, you'll be fine. Right. The second thing that's so difficult about it is that people, like you said, people can do all the right things. And because of other people's negligence, because of other people aren't being community minded and protecting their fellow community members, people get sick and die for no reason, for, through absolutely no fault of their own. Now, I know we all have some of that. Like, that's what drunk driving is, you know, deaths from drunk driving or because someone else is being reckless and irresponsible and a person who's doing nothing wrong pays a price. But this is happening on such a large scale and that there's so much resistance to doing the bare minimum of protective behavior on the community level, right? If you don't care about yourself, fine, don't care about yourself. But you putting on a mask, you keeping distance helps protect other people. And they actually care about themselves. You know, I think what made it his death even harder for me was because people in my own family, in my, on my husband's side of the family, were those people. Mm. That hurt a lot because the day that he died, you know, of course, we let the family know he, he passed away this morning. And it was sad because he was alone, right? Nobody who knew him was there. We have nurses who were trying to save his life, but no one who actually knew him and loved him were there, were able to be with him or see him while he was sick. And um, but I pretty much got back like, well, we still stand by what we supported. Like I said, he died alone because it, it was sort of a domino. It was... A domino effect. It was almost like a direct <laughs> it was a, a consequence. Every, yeah, everything that was happening was just like it had snowballed, and I I know what was happening, and and in a sense, it was just like, well, we made our decision, and we stand by our decision, and this was never said to me, but this is the gist that I got. Like your dad was collateral damage. <sighs> for this no one ever said that to me but it was kind of like you know um this is the sacrifice of our of our freedoms right of our freedoms of our religious beliefs um you know we had a president who wanted to to end all abortions and that's why we voted for him okay to end all abortions everything else after that was just kind of like not as important as the mm-hmm. abortion thing. Yeah. And that's that's what really got me is all the awful things that had been happening, not just with COVID, but absolutely everything. I kept thinking, okay, well, something bad is going to happen. And then they'll finally see the light. Oh, well, now this can't be acceptable. Then they'll see it then. Well, maybe this, they can't be okay with this. But it just kept getting worse and worse and the stuff that people were swallowing, I just like, I was really just drained. I could not mm. believe that I was surrounded by so much ignorance. Yeah. I do not consider myself a political expert at all, but it was plain in plain sight. You could see what was happening. 
Yeah. I was it's, really- it's personal. Right? It's not political. It's personal. Oh, yeah. People are like, well, we're not going to have the same political beliefs. And I'm like, but I was actually okay. I was okay with Republicans a long time ago. My parents used to be Republicans, but not this time around. They were mm-hmm. just like, not this time because they yeah. could see how bad it was. I could see how bad it was before, you know, he was elected and. I just couldn't, I was just like, you're kidding me. You really think that's okay? But they all did. And that's when I realized, oh, I'm always going to be different and other. Yeah. I think one thing that's been interesting, a lot of people of color, first generation, you know, Americans that we talk to, again, it's part of it is that like, but I am an American, you know, our our parents came over from different countries and they, they, my parents still very much strongly identify, identify with India. They're actually far more engaged in Indian politics than they are in American politics, which I'm just like, how does that work? You live here and what's happening here affects your lives more than what's happening in India. But somehow the pull for what Indian culture and Indian politics especially is very strong with them. Less so for us, obviously. The second thing is, you know, so all this talk about like Americans and who who are true Americans. I think that is, there's a lot of, I have a lot of grief about what I have seen of my fellow Americans in the last, you know, six years, let's say, about what it means to be a true American. A true American, I, I consider myself, I mean, I was born in this country, right? I am a true American. And yet, somehow the color of my skin or the way my, you know, the pronunciation of my name makes me not a true American. And so whatever traumas happen to me, they can be dismissed. Ah, not you. We don't care about you. I mean, we care about you if we don't have to work hard at caring about you. Right. If we can stay comfortable. If I can still stay here in my worldview you can come into my worldview, right. but I'm not going to shift or open up my worldview to include you. Yeah. Exactly. You guys are like reading my mind. Exactly. <laughs> we, you know, our experiences are slightly different in the flavor of the experiences, but I think, you know, as we're finding out, they're really, really similar parents who, you know, have a vision for you and what your life is supposed to be like and when the right time to do certain things is and when the right you know, how to do certain things and what's acceptable and what's not. And this, you know, the same sort of, it's not quite toxic positivity, but that whole, like, keep your head down and just work hard. And we're not here to fit in. We're just here to, you know, have opportunity. Uh, That's those messages were definitely, if not said exactly that way, that was, you know, the thrust of everything. I I think that's so true. And I think, it's also, it's false. Like my parents used to say, just work hard, be quiet. You'll be accepted. You'll, you'll assimilate. They let me watch a lot of eighties TV, which I don't know if that's the best way to assimilate, but <laughs> you know, I'm familiar with eighties pop culture because of that. And they wanted me to learn English. They wanted me because they knew that everybody around me was speaking Tagalog and they wanted me to learn English as best I could. Now I cannot speak Tagalog. I can understand it, but yeah, I learned English. It was fine. <laughs> Yeah, um, <laughs> it worked out for you. But that means you probably say like cowabunga and, and stuff like that, because that's when you learned it. How right? rude. How rude. <laughs> yeah. Like Valley Girl stuff and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. 
<laughs> so you know English. You um you have given us so much of your time and honestly, Kristen, I'm like, can we just push back everything and talk to her for six hours? We oh, do a hundred percent. I'm like, I already see you coming back yeah. twelve times. Yeah. But one thing that you know we we ask everybody mm-hmm. is uh you brought up like, you know, you don't speak the Gaelic, but you do you know, you do understand it. I'm the same. She she speaks Gujarati much better than I do, but I understand it all, uh, which really confuses my husband because my mom and I all have like bilingual conversations. He only understands half of it. (laughs) Um, And some of the times he doesn't understand what I'm saying either. But we ask everyone because one of the things um, I learned about recently is the word, um, it's called familect. And it means the words that's like the linguistics and the vocabulary that is unique to your family. And what we've found in a lot of first generation lives, that a lot of those words are from their parents' native country. Are there words that you use, you and your sister, you and your parents, even you know with your kids, that you use that are your familect that is you know um, from Tagalog? Even if you don't use them properly, because I give this example all the time. The word chalo in Gujarati is let's go. And I will say, um, come on, let's chalo, or we're going to chalo. Like I say, I use it wrong, but my daughter knows that that means like we have to get going. Do you have yeah. any words like that? Well, we don't use it in my house uh, often, but when, you know, when my mom was around, she used to, and they, they lived in, they've lived out of state for quite a while, but there was always this thing where they'd say to Scott as soon as he comes in, like, eat, eat, nah, eat, nah. <laughs> right? So it's eat, nah, which means now in Tagalog, you already eat. You should be eating already. And <laughs> that's what they always say in, like, so eat, nah, eat, nah. So, like, Scott remembers them always <laughs> saying that. And sometimes I'm just like, eat, nah, eat, nah, of <laughs> now. Why aren't you eating? Already, you just put stepped in the door, but why aren't you eating? Like, why aren't you eating? Are you getting fat? Why aren't you eating? But you're getting fat. Like, it's like that's like <laughs> Asian, like, eat more. Why are you getting weight? <laughs> oh boy, that is so, hilarious. That's really funny. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't used that in a long time, but that was one thing I remember. Out of all of these podcasts, I'm going to. I'm just going to start using these words. Yeah. Because they're amazing. They are really good. All right. Well, Kristen, we have so thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. Um, Me too. You guys. So much fun. And it's, I love hearing your perspective on, on sort of what's happening right now in the world. And yes, we're absolutely going to have to bring you back on. But also it's been really cool to hear your stories and be like, oh, that's really similar. And I always say this really similar and so different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, like I said earlier, one of the things that we, our goal is to find the connecting threads that connect all of these othered people and, you know, is being othered a club that, you don't want to be in, but you can find connection. Mm-hmm. And, you know, cause like no one asked to be a member of the other club, but within that we find community and we can find love and we can find friendships. And by the way, you and I are going to be best friends. So I've already figured that out. You are the worst at taking I know. my friends. I poach, Kristen, I poach all of Sheila. friends. 
but she's so good at finding really good friends and then (laughs) and then i'm like i'm like oh this person's super stop introducing me to your friends Uh, no don't don't stop introducing (laughs) me to your friends let me keep seeing your friends um so i am blown away by this like i could keep i'm blown away by your vulnerability and your openness to talk about some really painful topics or just some difficult topics, not necessarily painful, but thank you so much for being here and for speaking for, for speaking. Yeah. We need to hear more voices like that for sure. Thank you guys for having me. It's great because I feel like nobody ever wants to listen to me and this is my chance to say stuff. You know, it's, it is funny that one of the things we hear from literally every guest so far is, I don't think I have anything interesting to say, or why would someone want to hear from me? I'm not hearing that from you necessarily, but I think this whole sense of like, I'm, I'm just me and I live my, you know, I'm, I'm not like this, I'm not Elon Musk, or I'm not like someone who's like, has these amazing stories, except for that everyone's story is amazing. So, and, and that we want to give people the platform to speak about whatever they want to speak about. So Again, thank you. And thank you for being really vocal about some stuff that can be difficult to talk about. My pleasure. My pleasure. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. Yep, and uh, we will, huh? Yeah. And we will talk to you soon. And everybody, um, what I want to do is put a few, uh, if we could talk to Anne and Kristen, if you have some resources and uh, yes. charities that we can donate to that's they are working hard against these Asian hate crimes. I would love to put them in the show notes yeah. and um, on the social media because what we need is not only vocal people, but we need active people. So, and that could be marching, that could be donating. So we, um, you know, we're going to put some resources on the show notes and the social media so people can get involved because we need more people to fight against this bullshit. So thank you so much. We will talk to you soon, Kristen. All right. Thank you, guys.